Welcome to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 34. I ended up in jail on my 18th birthday. And during my time there, I really realized that after talking to a lot of people in there, I realized that that life was not for me. You know, I, what you hear in life about, you know, you're either going to end up in jail or you're either going to end up dead or in the hospital ended up being true for me. I had already ended up in the hospital from my health, but I ended up in jail and I had friends who were dying either from overdose or from killings. My name is Alina Warwick, and I'm extremely honored to speak with Christian Karyan on this episode. Christian went through quite a journey that was both life-changing for him and transformational. He not only saw his own sister die, but went through constant racism living in America, was incarcerated for a period of time, but also lost both of his kidneys, which ended up firing up that entrepreneurial spirit on the inside. He started his wealth management firm at the age of 27, and three years later, he's a successful young entrepreneur. So let's dive right in and hear all about his journey. All right, Christian, thank you so much for coming to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear all about your journey. And you know, I read about you in the book, Immigrant Hustle. So let's dive right in because it's one of a kind and I'm really, really excited. So let's talk about your immigrant journey. Tell us where you're from and when did you come to the United States? Yeah, so I am from Guadalajara, Mexico, and we came in 1997. Okay, so how old were you? I was seven. Okay, so you came with your family. Yes. And why did your family want to immigrate to the United States? A series of events happened when I grew up. I had a younger sister around the age of two to three. So this was around 92, 93. She, her kidneys started to fail. And so for the two to three years that followed, our life was pretty much, or what I remember is week after week, appointments with doctors, appointments with dialysis. She was on dialysis three times a week and just hospital visits back to back week by week. And unfortunately, two years of that life were too much for her. And she ended up passing away in 1996. Oh no, I'm sorry for that. No worries. And I think that was around the end of 1996. And throughout that journey, my mom, Mexico has, is very loose with their loss. And so my mom found herself in a position where she was handing over the hospital money in order to move my sister up in the transplant list. Mind mm-hmm. you, this was in the 90s, right? So mm-hmm. I can imagine that now Mexico might be different. Mm-hmm. But in the in those days, it was very hardly any rules applied. Mm-hmm. And so she felt betrayed that. I remember her specifically telling me that she employed a lot of people from the city. She had a, a pretty big company back then. Mm-hmm. And she just said, I, you know, I employed a lot of people from the city. I gave the hospital money in order to move your sister up. And that never happened. So she felt betrayed by that. She felt betrayed by Mexico, being that how she was so involved with the community outreach that she did. And so she felt scammed. Yeah, she did. She pretty much put her life on hold in order to help my sister out. 
And she fell into depression shortly after. And she sort of didn't want to do anything with money anymore. She wanted no relationship with it. So she decided to leave Mexico. She told my, she brought it up to my dad and, and me ultimately that she wanted us to move to the United States and leave Mexico behind. She, so we did that. She didn't sell the business. She did not sell her house. She, she gave everything away. She gave her business to her employees. I mean, pretty much all her belongings, she gave mm-hmm. them away to her family, her parents. And we came here with just whatever we had in our briefcase. And I think it was around $5,000. And that's where our journey started here in 97. And what kind of business did she have? She owned like, a small retail store. I want to oh, say, okay. how can I compare it to? Probably your typical retail store that you see on the corner. Something smaller than Sears or Macy. Yeah. And so she basically decided to come to the United States for a fresh start. Yes. Got it. And what about your dad? He had a business in Mexico as well. It was a very small, you know, like a handyman. He would help out people with car issues, anything that they needed help with, pretty much. And he ended up coming here. We came here first, my mom and I. And I think he came five months later, just to make sure, you know, all the business that needed to be taken care of in Mexico happened. And he came over here and we originally moved to Oxnard, California, which is, you know, an hour and a half north of LA. So what was it like growing up in Mexico? What are some memories that you remember since you were still really young? Tell me a little bit more about that. I don't know if my mind blocks a lot of things from the pain of what we went through, but I don't remember much. I remember a lot of doctor visits. I remember a lot of dialysis appointments. I remember one or two birthdays. Other than that, I don't remember much. I think, you know, like I said, I was really affected by what happened. And, And I mean, I literally saw my sister pass away in front of me. And I think that was a big shock into my childhood. And I think somehow (laughs) my mind decided it was probably best to block that those years from me. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so, so tough. And I can't imagine losing a sibling and especially right in front of you and going through all those struggles. You feel like you are there with her when she's going through that pain. Wow. That's, I can't imagine that pain. So I'm sorry that you went through that. Thank you. No worries. So tell me a little bit about the struggles that you had to go through when you first immigrated to California. We moved to Oxnard, like I said, we, we, since we had no money, we stayed in a very, very small one-car garage. We made that garage into a living room. You guys lived in a garage? Yeah. So I don't know if other immigrants have similar stories, but when we came here, we didn't obviously had no money, so we couldn't mm-hmm. rent anywhere. And we had my brother's sister's family had a house that they let us live with them. But Mm -hmm. since they had no room, they turned the garage into a bedroom. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. So, you know, but it was extremely small, like just one car could fit in there. So it was literally the bed that was there for us. And then a, they made some sort of closet for us. And this was for a family of three? Yes. Okay. And we lived there for, I think, three years. My parents picked up any kind of jobs they could in order to save some money. I started going to elementary school. I think I started in third grade here. It was very tough. We lived on food stamps during those times. Uh, You know, I was called Fez, you know, like the guy from the 70s shows because my English was not well. I was in a lot of uh, ESL classes. 
Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of uh, picked on due to my lack of English. And that was my life. You know, one thing I really remember from that part of my childhood was when I don't know if it was disgust that people would, you know, they would give us this look of disgust. We would shop with food stamps, but it felt like it was, you know, I felt Mm -hmm. like because I was being judged a lot in school, I sort of developed that paradigm. And that was my perspective with everything. I felt like I faced a lot of racism through that. And I felt some sort of way when people would look at us and find us holding them up in the line in order to pay with the food stamps, right? So I felt embarrassed. I felt sad from what was happening from this childhood I had in Mexico to how we were living now. And that was my life for those three years. Eventually, my parents saved up a little bit of money. We moved to Canoga Park, uh, which is a little bit closer to Los Angeles. And everything started to get better. My parents started saving money. My mom started opening up her own hair salon. And everything was picking back up. I got into high school. I wanted to play baseball for the high school team. So I applied and they told me, you know, hey, go do your physical. You're healthy and you're able to do everything. And so I went to go get my physical done. And I think it was February 14th. I think I remember the date, February 14th, 2006. And the doctor came in after getting my blood work done, really shocked saying that your son needs to go to the hospital right now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And he said, well, his GFR, which measures the kidney's health, was at 13. Mind you, the sorry, not the GFR, the creatinine. Creatinine measures the, I guess, the health of the kidney. Uh-huh. This level is supposed to be between 0.07 to 1.3 in your body. So if you're within that range, you're you have healthy kidneys. My level was at 13, which oh my was goodness a stage five kidney failure, which means that the kidney function was under 15%. But I felt fine, right? I felt no symptoms. It was really, it was a weird situation because they said, well, you shouldn't be able to walk right now. Your kidneys are literally about to give out any second now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So they rushed me to the hospital and that was my first memory of starting a life of hospital visits again. Everything that I went through with my sister, I relived it in my teenage years. Immediately, I went into dialysis because my kidneys weren't working. I was considered the sick kid in school. I had to step out of high school for the junior year because I just, my life became an exact replica of hers. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I was in dialysis. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I was in doctor appointments. Or during that time, my parents had a little bit more awareness on the different types of possible remedies from Eastern to Western medicine. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, my parents had a little bit of money saved, which was going to be the down payment for a home. And so they decided to use that money to try everything. So I went to every single kind of doctor from Eastern to Western, all up and down California. I think, you know, I want to say the up to down to San Diego and up to Santa Barbara. We tried we anywhere we could, anywhere we got, you know, referrals, we went and we did the best we could. And unfortunately, nothing worked. It was too late. The kidney function could not be increased. And so how old were you when you discovered this? 16. 16 years old. Okay. Yeah. So pretty much 10 years after what had happened with my sister. And 
that was my life. You know, my mom, I remember specifically that my mom had this freedom. Well, mind you, this was in, all this started happening in 2006 and led up to 2008 when the economy took a hit. And during that time, like I said, my mom had a business, she owned a hair salon, but the same freedom that she had in order to step outside of her business to take care of me and take me to appointments was the same freedom that cost her losing her business because she wasn't there to cater to her clients, to make sure she was also there for her employees. Her business started to go down. And so she opened a business in America. She did. Okay. She came here and she, you know, she got licensed to be an esthetician and she ended up opening that when I entered high school. Mm. It was successful. It was doing well, but because she had to pretty much spend a full eight hour shift, if we had to be at, we would go to UCLA for dialysis and you can just think about the traffic that's in LA and it would take oh, us yes. an hour and a half, two hours just to get to UCLA from where we were. Um, spent six hours there in dialysis, doctor appointments, and then another two hours to drive back home. By the time that day was finished, it was uh, pretty much her whole workday. So did you have to get out of school? I did. I was not in school for my junior year. I did a little bit of homeschooling. It was tough because I just I had no schedule outside of... Doctor's visits. Yeah, dialysis. It was literally, I asked myself all the time, what did I need to learn from this? Because I was reliving everything that my sister went through. Yeah. Literally everything. And so that was my life during high school. Eventually... My mom ended up being a match. And thankfully, with the system here in America, we were able to go through the transplant process extremely fast. Mm. I think within four or five months after I started dialysis, they we were almost pretty much ready to go with the transplant surgery. And so I think it was in 2007 that we did the transplant and everything went fine. I was able to get a kidney from her and life starts to get better. <laughs> you know, oh, again, good. it was yeah. like, uh, you know, fall down twice, get yourself up for the third time. So this was two years going through all of that dialysis, doctor's visits, and then mm -hmm. your mom was able to be a donor for the kidney. Yes. Got it. And so after that, were you like 100% healed or what was the recovery process? I was. I spent two months in bed rest. Okay. I really couldn't move. But other than that, to a certain standard, right? Like, like I, I wasn't 100% um, healed. There's still a, you're typically after you go through an organ transplant, you need to take anti-rejection medicine mm -hmm. in order for your body to not reject the organ because mm -hmm. it's still not yours. So your immune system tends to attack it. Mm -hmm. So I have to take, I, and I've been taking immunosuppressants, specific medicine to bring down my immune system. So it doesn't have the strength to attack the organ. Wow, your your mom must be so proud to be able to save your life. <laughs> she is. I mean, you know, she it was really tough to to go through that again and, and to think that she would possibly lose her second child. We they ended up having another son, and which yeah. is my younger brother. But yeah. I mean to go through that process again, but this time to actually be able to give a kidney, mm -hmm. it was really beautiful. So I wanted to go back to um, a certain snippet that you mentioned in the book uh, about racism. And you mentioned something about minor violations and how you guys were treated. Tell me more about that. And how did you feel? And did you ever want to just leave the United States and go back to Mexico after being treated like that? Uh, well, I faced it a lot. I didn't have an awareness of a lot of things. So I would wear 
hats. Just everybody wears hats because I was Hispanic and I looked at a certain way during that time. I would get pulled over a lot. And they immediately would take me out and put me in handcuffs and ask me what gang I was affiliated with. Oh my goodness. Because, you know, let's say I was wearing a New York Yankees hat. There's a gang nearby where I lived that those letters apparently represented the same gang letters. And because I was Hispanic, they would pull me over and immediately I would get put in handcuffs and asked that same question. And it would happen, you know, whether I was with my parents or not. To answer your question, I didn't feel like, like I wanted to move back to Mexico. What I did feel is, was a, I felt sort of bad for being Hispanic. I felt maybe bad's not the right word, but I feel like because of all the judgment that I went through, all the, having elementary and middle school people called me Fez really affected, affected my, my confidence because I, I didn't speak English really well until high school. And so that sort of created this outlook for me as far as how I resembled myself or, or how I represented myself as being Hispanic. Mm-hmm. I During high school, I went to a pretty predominantly white high school. And so I gravitated towards that. I For some reason, I wanted to be in certain kind of groups so I could not be put together with this group of Hispanic people and be considered that part of whatever that group uh, activity was up to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that was because I was also depressed back then. And I was thinking differently. I thought that if I gravitated towards a white culture more, I would be accepted. I would no longer have that nickname. Mind you, this was in high school and I no longer had that nickname. But, you know, as you can tell from everything that I went through in childhood, it, it sort of carried with me up to high school and I felt a certain way. Yeah, so your self-confidence was always just beaten down by all these different things that you were experiencing from your childhood to ESL classes to mm-hmm. being called Fez and and then racism through the law enforcement. Yes. Wow. So before you tell our listeners about your company, tell me more about the path that you took. Did you try to go into any other fields before starting your business? I did. I think this goes back to college, my days in college. Well, I should say that right after high school, 2008 happened and it sort of crippled our family even more. My, my mom ended up losing her business. My dad lost his job and obviously we had no, no money. And so it really affected us. The emotional decisions that came out of not having a financial plan really did not benefit us at all. My mom developed a gambling addiction. My dad developed a drinking addiction. And I, finding being depressed and needed to find some sort of support group outside of that, I joined, I have a lot of cousins here, or I had a lot of cousins who were in gangs. And I gravitated towards that after high school. And wow. so I ended up in jail on my 18th birthday. And during my time there, I really realized that after talking to a lot of people in there, I realized that that life was not for me. You know, I, what you hear in life about, you know, you're either going to end up in jail or you're either going to end up dead or in the hospital ended up being true for me. I had already ended up in the hospital from my health, but I ended up in jail and I had friends who were dying either from overdose or from killings. Wow. So did you say that you joined a gang? No, no, I didn't oh. join it, but I, I grew up in that. That was my environment during those years. I would hang out with my cousins and my cousins were in gangs. So I oh, was got it. 
in that world. And so I didn't spend a lot of time in jail. I think it was two weeks. But during that time, I realized that, that I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want that to be my future. I felt that if I had a second chance in life, there was no way that I was going to let this you know, second chance go to waste. Mm-hmm. And so after that, my mom, you know, through the help with my mom, she, she said, well, you know, you need to go to college. And so for some reason, they accepted me. And during college, I realized that I wanted to make with the classes that I was taking and the education that I was getting, I realized that I wanted to create some sort of residual income mm-hmm. because during the times that my, what happened through my sister and what happened with myself, age 16 through 19, I realized that I was not employable. Companies could not keep me on because I had to miss a lot of work or I had to miss a lot of school. And so I thought, okay, so in 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if I need to go through another transplant again, and what will I do if there's no income coming in? Mind mm-hmm. you, my, my perspective back then would, didn't have the understanding of health insurance or pay time off, retirement assets, et cetera. So I just thought, okay, well, if I'm not at work, then I won't have an income coming in. And so during that time, I made a decision to find a way to create a residual income for the future. Okay. So I got to ask, what did you study in college? Finance. Finance. Okay. I started to teach myself how to trade stocks when I was 20. I saw that as a possible way to create residual income in the future. And so I started to teach myself. And where did you get that idea? Did you have some friends that were already generating some nice income or where did you find that stock business and start doing and learning investments? In college, I in had college. nobody, nobody that I knew was in that <laughs> at all. Mind wow. you, I was in a completely different world. So you were a really good student in, in those finance classes. <laughs> yeah, I gravitated. You know, I was really bad in school. I had a really low GPA in high school. I was absent most of the time. But once I realized that I had to create something for myself in the future in order to not go, you know, this is how I saw it. And this is what happens, and I'll share a little bit more of this in our call in a bit, but when we have no income or we're in a situation where we go through a life event, whether you know it's losing a sibling, a parent, a partner, and your income is affected, whether your savings is or, or your current cash flow, the decisions that you make are emotional. And that mm-hmm. decision tends to affect people tenfold. I mean, you know, the decisions that we took, like the decisions that my parents took during that time, led into depression, led into an alcohol addiction, led into a gambling addiction for my mother because we had no foundation, Mm. right? So everything went away. We had no money on top of going through everything that we went through. So that was my pain. My pain was living through 08, having seen my parents struggle so much. They filed for bankruptcy and literally we had no money. And I did not want to live through that again. I knew from the conversations that we had with the doctors that, hey, there's a good probability that later in life, your kidneys will start to fail because your immune system is just will never stop trying to attack the kidney. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, well, there's a good chance that I'm going to live through this again. So what can I do now? So, you know, like I said, 10, 20 years from now, uh, we don't go through that. Whether to bulletproof it's, yourself. Right, right. Yeah. Whether it's that through my own, if I have a family of my own or with my parents. And so that's when I started to teach myself how to trade stocks. I didn't join a fraternity in college. I didn't go out partying. I worked at a bar during college and I would get off you know, at two, three in the morning and I'd wake up at 5.30 in the morning in order to teach myself how to trade. 
I didn't know what I was doing. I ended up losing $15,000 my first year. Oh. Thankfully, the bar I worked at provided a good income. And so, and I also lived with my parents back then. So it affected me, but not as much as someone can imagine. And how were you teaching yourself? This is outside of college or just through college textbooks? Outside. You don't learn this. You don't learn stock trading. In finance. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's mostly corporate finance, right? Not how to day trade. (laughs) Yeah. And did you take like online courses or just pick up books from Barnes and Nobles? What'd you do? Yeah, I picked up books, no courses. I picked up books. I watched a lot of YouTube. YouTube was my mentor back then. Got it. And so, you know, little by little, I started, I just kept trading. The first year I lost 15,000. The second year, I think I lost like 5,000. The third year I broke even. And then the fourth year I started making some money. You know, during that journey, everybody kept telling me, well, do something else with your life. My parents were always wondering why I was doing that and why I was not focusing in college in order to try and get an internship or trying to get a better job out of college. And for some reason, I was just focused on this. They didn't understand, but they also didn't understand. A lot of friends didn't understand the pain that I went through in 2008 with my family. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the main driver in keeping me focused. And so on the fifth year, I made money. And then... This is out of college already, right? No, I did five years in college. Oh, okay. Yeah. So on the fifth year, when I graduated, I had made enough money to move out, move back into my parents. So I moved into my parents to help them out. So I stayed with them for a year after college and I paid their bills as a thank you for helping me. I thought I had my life figured out back then. I said, I'm just going to trade for the rest of my life and I'll generate an income from that. And so going to your question of what I did after prior to the business that I have, shortly after leaving college and just trading, I realized that I I didn't love it enough to do that for the rest of my life. And I wanted to help people with their health. Mm -hmm. And so I started working with a company called Medtronic, which engineers the insulin pumps for people with diabetes. So you went and got yourself a job. I did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I still traded, you know, I would wake up really early and right before I would go to work, I, I would trade. Got it. And so I worked in their sales department and I spoke to, I think I lasted for a year there. I got the opportunity to speak with patients all around the US. And I thought that I wanted to help people with their health, right? I want to see what I could do in order to help people with their health, because if their health is taken care of, then they can have a happy life, manageable, right? But happy. And during my time there, I realized that there was a bigger underlying problem. I realized that regardless of the income, if you still went through a life event, which they did due to their health, that they would be unprepared for what led for for the life that happened after the life event. A lot of patients that I talked to, they ended up selling their homes or they're moving back to their siblings or parents because just their credit card debt and all of this other debt that kept increasing while they got sick because some of them, they couldn't work anymore. They had no income to maintain their living expenses on top of their health and their credit card debt that kept piling up. And so I realized, wow, this is exactly the same thing that my family went through. And I thought it was strictly an income problem, right? I thought Mm -hmm. that if you're making under six figures a year, then you're more likely to go through these sort of situations. And while that, that is true, there's still a large portion of Americans that due to a lack of financial literacy, we don't really prepare for a life event. And so I said, okay, well, I want to change and pivot from what I'm doing 
and get into helping people create a financial plan. Because if at that point I realized that if you make sure all you fill up all your buckets within a financial plan, then if you go through a life event, you no longer have to worry about money because you took care of all the things you needed to take care of before that life event happened. And that is the journey that got me into what I'm currently doing. Okay. So you said you were in that very first company for one year. You you said you lasted there for one year. And Mm -hmm. so after that, did you open up your own business or did you go somewhere else? Well, after I left Medtronic, I joined a financial planning firm and I left in a year after that. I had, you know, always get lunch with a buddy of mine from college and he was a financial advisor and he always shared that he wanted to have his own business, this and that. And throughout time, we both agreed that, hey, I'm going to make the jump. He would tell me and say, okay, I'll, I'll leave as well and join you. And I think that was in August of 2017 that he left. And then I left in, in October of 2017 to create what we have now. Okay. So, and then that's when you guys created all one wealth. Yes. Okay. And so how old were you? 27. 27 years old. Okay. So you and your partner decided to branch out from the financial industry that he was in and create this company. Yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about All One Wealth and what you guys do. Yeah. So All One Wealth is a socially responsible wealth management firm. So we help people invest for retirement, college, or to leave a legacy, but we do it in socially responsible companies. We believe that money's energy and that we transmute that energy from companies that are extracting value like Exxon to companies that are creating value and making an impact in the world, then you create a consciousness shift because you're moving, you're allocating the energy towards what's creating a bigger impact. And therefore that will also increase the returns of your investments because you you have higher employee retention rate, you have companies that are generating higher revenues because of what they're doing and they're actually helping the world move into a better area of a higher level of consciousness in a way. And so we believe that you obviously get a higher return. And and through our research and how we've managed the portfolios throughout the last three years, it's done just that. Okay. So, and who are your major clients? Are these companies or these individual people? Uh, Who do you guys mainly serve? Individual investors. Okay. Got it. And so are you guys an investment firm or do you guys manage 401ks and stocks and bonds, wealth management overall? Okay. Yeah. Wealth management, we do manage some 401ks, but it's mostly individual investors. Okay. Got it. And so mainly through stocks and bonds or anything else? Yes. Stocks and bonds, ETFs, but pretty much that universe. Okay. So do you guys have a minimum investment for someone like a new client that wants to come in and start their portfolio? We do right now. It's Mm $250,000, but we are working on creating a automated robot. So it's an automated, I don't know if you've heard of Betterment or Wealthfront. No. So they are an automated advisor, which pretty much means that if you want to bypass the human aspect of investment management, you go to these companies and you input your information, you answer you know, the questions so they can understand your investment profile and who you are as an investor. And they create a portfolio to meet those objectives. 
And so we're in the middle of creating something like that, but a social responsible one. So that way, anybody from any background, you know, from any type of investment portfolio can also do the same with pretty much a very, very small minimum. Got it. So that's actually talking to a live robot or through AI software? Okay. Okay. Got it. That would be really cool to talk to a robot. (laughs) It would be. I think that's the future. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. I got to ask you something then. If someone does not have $250,000 to come and get some awesome advice, where do you think they can start from? Like on their own? I think there's a lot of websites out there that can help. I mean, I won't turn somebody away as far as like, hey, we can have a 30 minute hour call to try and guide you towards the best place. So I don't mind being that point of reference and guiding them somewhere wherever they need to go. But Google, you know, YouTube, it's a good source. Betterment, but Betterment or Wealthfront, there's also a very good, which are the only two main auto advisors. And so any financial books that you would recommend them reading, picking up? Good question. I'm back <laughs> in my library behind me. And... Yeah. <laughs> I know I've heard um, The Millionaire Mind several times on the show. I've heard Millionaire Next Door. Yes, that's a good book. You know, one comes to mind, but I can't remember the name of it. A Rich Man in Babylon. That's, that's a good book. Yeah. I think it's by, it's called, I Will Teach You How to Be Rich. I can't remember the author. I think it's an amazing book for somebody who's getting started. I mean, it goes over through every single aspect of your life, whether it's, you know, how to manage your credit cards, how to start an investment portfolio, how to consider your first home purchase. It goes over a, a lot. I think that's a great source. And it's called, uh, once again, I will teach you how to be rich. I can't remember the author, but it's an amazing book. Got it. Okay. I will find that and link it into our show notes. So anyone can pick up that book on Amazon or Audible, wherever they're listening. Of course. Okay. Awesome. Great. Thanks a lot for all that advice and for all that knowledge that you just shared with us. So how long did it take your business to start seeing some real traction in the beginning stages? And I know in the book, you mentioned that the very first month you made like $6. Yeah. So the way that we chose to collect our fee is a management fee, which is a an annual management fee versus a commission-based model. Okay. So we feel like it's more of a fiduciary to work with somebody and have our fee be tied to the performance of their portfolio versus, you know, taking a five or 10% commission on whatever investment size they have. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very outdated model. It no longer works. And so, right. So when we started, my friends were the first ones to become my clients. And so being that they had small portfolio sizes, the income tended to be, tended to be very small. And so the first month, it, my income was $6. Did you have to split that $6 with your partner? Uh, that was my split. Oh, okay. <laughs> After. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it was very small. And, you know, luckily he had, what helped us is that he had a book already from the previous wealth managing firm that he had. And I brought over, throughout time, I brought over my book that I had from the financial planning firm. And pretty much savings. Savings is what helped us out a lot. Mm, Okay. So did you guys have to raise any capital to start your business? Yes. My business partner was in a place where he could take out 
some money from his property. And so we did. We took out, I think it was around 50000 Mm-hmm. in order to help us create the structure of the RIA and get started. Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, going back to that previous question, how long did it take you guys to see some real attraction? So the first month was $6 and I'm hoping it went up after that. Yeah. I want to say we're on six months. I mean, throughout six those months. six months, we onboarded all the previous clients. And after six months, we started to see some reasonable income and we just kept growing it. And then did you do marketing or uh, Facebook ads or any kind of adver- advertisement? No, the SEC is a little bit weird about us marketing. So what we did is we pretty much just did a lot of networking. We partnered up with a lot of conscious companies in, here in, um, in the West Coast. And so we are part of actually a lot of nonprofits that, are, that work together to connect a lot of conscious companies. And throughout those networks, we started working together with new clients. And what does conscious companies mean? I think it's when they put impact on top of, not maybe not on top, but with profits. You know, a lot of companies tend to choose profits and greed, and therefore they tend to skip out on a lot of ethical and, and governance issues, you know, which is one of the things that we look at. Our investment criteria is, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but we filter companies through an ESG standard mm-hmm. and that's environmental, social, and governance. So if companies don't meet a certain environmental standard, a social standard or governance standard, then they don't fit into our investment criteria. So we don't want companies who are just out trying to... Destroy the world. <laughs> yeah. And we want companies that are actually doing something for the world, helping the world become better or they're infrastructure is focused on a high governance standard? Is there a good relationship between the corporate entity and the shareholders, right? Mm -hmm. You know, is there, how does the recycling of toxic materials look like for these companies? So there's a lot of things that we need to consider. And I think that's what makes a company conscious, that they also consider these things, that they also want to make sure that not only within their company, but in the community that they're in, in the world, in the industry that they're in, they're also contributing something else other than just extracting profits. Such an, an amazing business model to have to be able to impact the world on the back end by promoting all these eco-friendly and conscious companies. That's awesome. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Christian, did you have any mentors that helped you out to start your business? I want to say my business partner, you know, he's a little bit older than me and and he has, he, after college, he was in wealth management already. So he has, I think, seven years of prior experience to when him and I got together. So I would definitely consider him as a mentor when we got started. Other than that, we really didn't have anybody else. I think we sort of took the, we, we sort of got started into starting our own thing at a very young age, typically in this industry you sort of branch out after you've done some time with a big company. And we sort of took the back door on this. So we were just learning as we went. So I'm hearing a little bit that you guys didn't really have a business plan. (laughs) You guys just went all in and got your clients from other places and started to see some business growth and went from there. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, awesome. 
Okay. So what do you think most prepared you to become an entrepreneur? Is there anything that you can specifically see that prepared you in any way? I think my mom was a big impact on that. She was definitely an entrepreneur from Mexico, the life that we had in Mexico, and to choosing to pivot here, you know, immediately after working a couple of years and she saved up money, she opened up a business of her own. And prior to me getting sick in high school, I'd spend a lot of the time after high, after school at her hair salon and I would learn a lot of how to run a business. And so I think I learned a lot from her. So I think that was a big impact from myself and also trading. Trading taught me how to manage money in a different manner and how to take responsibility for the wins and losses of the business cycle. And it really showed me how to manage risk in a different way, how to calculate risks in a different way. And I think that allowed me to look at the risk of having no consistent income uh, much differently than somebody who is looking at that and comparing that to a paycheck, right? And a consistent income. Before I, I went into the, and started up my own business, I considered a consistent check as riskier than starting your own business because as an employee, 100% of the risk of your income is based on one person or one group deciding, right? A lot of friends, unfortunately, what happened last year with COVID, we saw that. We saw what happens when you have all your eggs in one basket and you are an employee of a company and they have to close down due to causes outside of their control. But unfortunately, they had to close down or they had to let a lot of employees go. I consider that a bigger risk than diversifying that risk with as many clients as you can possibly manage. If one client left, you still have 99 clients there who are helping you have an income. And I think a lot of what I learned, I learned that mostly through my trading and the type of risks that I learned how to make in the market. And I transitioned that over into owning a, a business. That is so powerful. The way that you say it's so much more riskier to be an employee than to being an entrepreneur and having that hold your future, having that uh, define your destiny. Whereas if you're an employee, you can be let go anytime. And mm -hmm. that's so powerful. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. Yeah. So looking back three years ago, when you first started with your partner, what are some struggles that you had to go through in the beginning stages? Because you said that, did you guys, did you quit your job? You had a steady paycheck and now you're down to zero. Yeah, I think the biggest struggle was, I mean, myself, right? The, mm -hmm. In the specific, I think my struggles are specific to the industry that I'm in. I faced a lot of um, struggles in cat and in welcoming in new clients. I would often be in situations where the conversations with new possible clients would be, well, how do you have the experience to manage my retirement assets when you're 28, 27 years old? Completely understandable. Yeah. And I faced that. And I think that was my biggest struggle in trying to grow the business for my, myself. Understandably, that no, not a lot of people wanted me to manage their retirement assets. Yeah. So I think that was the biggest one. I mean, I worked and, and I pivoted into 
learning and, you know, I did a mentorship. I did a year long mentorship with a hedge fund in Australia where they taught me how to code, how to program. And so I programmed strategies that I now use. And through that, I'm able to have better conversations with potential clients because now instead of them looking at my age and thinking, how can you manage my retirement assets? Now I have data and I have years of research that I can show them, well, I actually you know, created these type of investment models. And what's actually managing the portfolios are the models, not me. And I think that gives them a sense of relief being that the models, the, the algorithms are what's managing the money. And that takes, I guess it makes them feel more confident in their decision mm-hmm. in moving forward with me. What is that Hedgecott Fund company in Australia called? It is called, I don't know the exact name because okay. it was through a, it was a subsidiary of the hedge fund and the subsidiary was called the Chartist. The Chartist? Yeah. So okay. chart like a stock chart and okay. then Chartist like artist. Oh, got it. And so... Do they still run that mentorship program? They do. Okay. Got it. Got it. But that's pretty much how I pivoted from that struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you found like uh, maybe a small weakness that your clients were struggling to see that a young person like yourself, although you have a bachelor's degree in finance, they were kind of iffy of managing Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of dollars in retirement. So you pivoted and you went and got yourself more education, which is has tremendously helped you throughout your... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's changed. I want to say it's changed my life. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. That's amazing. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about successes. Are there any successes that you would like to outline from your immigrant entrepreneur journey? I think learning how to pivot, learning how my mom pivoted through those difficult years, learning how to pivot myself through as you know, I went through life. I think that's a really big success because you either take advantage of the possible opportunity that you're faced with and you pivot or you don't and you continue to work hard towards whatever you're working in, either that works out for you or it doesn't. And I think for somebody with my background, understanding that I was faced, I was given very little opportunities. I had to pivot into what could help me in the future. Looking at, I saw it as my health having a deadline and I had this mentality of, okay, I need to pivot if something's not working and just continue to do so until little by little, everything started happening for me. And I think I I see that as a success. So what's next for you, Christian? What are some business goals for the next couple of years? Anything you can share with us? Yeah. So I recently started a mentorship group. I mentor traders from, uh, it's pretty beautiful around the world. And I help them, I guide them in teaching them how to create their own systematic trading system. Okay. So managing the models, my goal is to continue doing that to help sort of give back to these group of traders that have decided to work with me, either through one-on-one mentoring or through group mentoring. And my goals are to have a hedge fund. I've created strategies that have done really well, especially in one of the worst years of the stock market. And my future is to have a hedge fund and to open up a nonprofit so I can help people create the lives they want, just like I have. Wow, amazing. I know you're going to surpass all those goals, Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. 
as an immigrant coming here, going through all those struggles, what does the American dream mean to you? Gosh, that's a powerful question. Yeah. (laughs) Take your time. (laughs) I think it means finding the freedom to, that's a really tough question. It's a good, (laughs) yeah, it just, it means so much. Um, How do I put it into words? I mean, I think it's being able to go out and create the life that you want. I think America is such a beautiful place to do that. And I think that regardless of your background, regardless of your situation, regardless of what you look like, I think you can come here and literally within a short now, especially the way technology is moving, within a short period of time, you can make a tremendous quantum leap and really create any type of life that you want. And I think that is a freedom that Americans have and not a lot of people around the world have, especially in very third world countries. And I think helping us each other, you know, realize that, that you can come and regardless of if you feel like you were to stand out because of your background or what you look like. I want to say that I faced a lot of racism and I faced a lot of judgment, but ultimately that was an internal belief. And it was not reality because if it was reality, I wouldn't be able to accomplish the things I did. Mm. And so I think that is what the American dream is to really, if you devote your focus, your time, your life, you know, a chapter of your life into really doing the work necessary, I think the world is yours and that's possible here. And we've seen that back to back by many different people in many different beautiful companies that they've created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, look at you. You were thrown in jail. You went through all sorts of racism through the law enforcement. Went, your parents went through bankruptcies. I mean, y- you live the life of <laughs> being down in the bottom to be creating this wealth management. And that is not easy at all. That There's so much responsibility in that. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. So what are some things that you would advise the next aspiring immigrant that wants to start their own business listening to you right now? I would say to commit and do it. I mean, if you're in a position in life where you don't have a lot of responsibilities, I just go back to the time that if you can take the risk, do it. Or to going back to the conversation on what I said about employee versus you know having your own business. Yeah. I mean, especially now after what happened last year, consider that risk and what that risk can mean for your future. There's going to be life events that happen. And those life events can end up crippling yourself, your family. So if you you right now have a good time span of two to five years where you have no big responsibilities as far as, you know, homeownership, a family, children, or you do, but that's a very small responsibility. I think we should be encouraged to be taking that risk especially in your 20s, uh, you know, if, if these are young immigrants who are still coming here, mm-hmm. I mean, just risk it all. Mm-hmm. If I were to lose everything, I would start all over again by risking it all. I just feel like there is so much opportunity here for you to not take any risk at all. And with the way the world is moving, I mean, you know, with the remote office work, with mm-hmm. the growth in consultants versus employees, right? If we can sort of imagine what that trajectory would be, we can sort of 
say, okay, well, this is the future that the United States is going, is moving towards. And so what can I do now? How can I risk a lot of my time and just create something of myself through the knowledge that one acquires or how they apply themselves in a job in order to make that quantum leap in their life? Mm, so amazing. So amazing. And forget about that broken English accent. You can still make it big <laughs> in America, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So to wrap it up, I have some super fast questions for you, if you're okay with that. Yes. Okay. What time do you normally start your day? 5.30. Wow. Awesome. And how many employees do you have? None. It's just you and your partner? It is. Wow. Awesome. So do you guys have an office or this is all just remote? We do. Currently, we're working from home. Okay. But you know, our office is in West Hollywood. Oh, got it. And so there's no employees. It's just you and your partner running the show. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. We, we've been able to become efficient by how we manage things. Yeah. And, and it's worked out well. That's great. That's great. Zero overhead cost. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah. All right. How often do you watch TV in a week? In a week? Uh, gosh, yeah. very little. Uh, you know, I have this, a lot of people consider it as a joke, but I don't. I've never bought a TV for myself. Nice. Since I've been here. So I don't, I'm against TV. I like to read. Yeah. And I think, you know, we should be educating ourselves yeah. more than watching TV. So I would say maybe two hours a week, maybe. Okay. So you do have a TV now? I do. It was a gift because I didn't <laughs> want to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we grew up without having a TV. So when we were in school, in like grade school, mm -hmm. all my friends were like, hey, did you see this show? And I'm like, no. And I was always the weird one because I had no idea what everyone was talking about yeah. all these shows. And I can totally relate to you. That's awesome. <laughs> Don't ever turn on that TV. <laughs> yeah, man, not if, if you haven't created the life that you wanted. Right, right. And the last one is how many hours of work do you normally put in on average in a week? Oh gosh, uh, way too many. <laughs> <laughs> I started the mentorship last quarter. And so that took up a lot of my time. Creating an algorithm is not an easy task. So I would find myself working after hours a lot. But you know, one of my goals this year is to pour love into the aspects of my life that I've been neglecting. So I, I want to take some time away from working too much. And so on average, what do you think it would be? 60. Oh, that's not bad at all. Really? <laughs> yeah. No, I have people on the show, 70, 80, and you know, they just work, work, work. 60 is not bad at all. <laughs> okay. Don't, don't panic. Don't freak out. <laughs> there was one girl on the show. She works like 120 hours a week. Oh, really? You know, I do want to quote one more thing from the book you mentioned. You say, work like hell the first few years so you can have the life you want later. Mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful to be focused on building that dream job or building that dream company and work like crazy. And who cares what people say? Because later on, you're going to have the last laugh. So absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much, Christian. I totally appreciate your time and coming on to this show. And what an amazing journey that you have gone through, through all those struggles and especially 
being in jail. I mean, that was probably such an eye-opening experience to you. And now you're rocking the world and you're building such an amazing company. And I wish you all the best of successes. Thank you, Lena. Thank you for inviting me and having me on. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. If there are any links that were mentioned in this episode, make sure to check them out on my website under this episode to find all the links conveniently located in the show notes. I just wanted to ask for a quick favor. If you could please leave a review wherever you're at listening to this podcast. Also, if you're an immigrant entrepreneur and would love to be on my podcast, please email me and we'll get connected. I'll see you guys all next time for another exciting and impactful episode. Take care.